Hi, welcome to a mathematical basis for reality. Chris, I think you should tell them that Physical Truth is a book on mathematics and philosophy, and that it's a good story. Imagine this. You're at the very beginning of World War II. You're defending your country, your beloved France. You've been captured by the Germans. You've either escaped or it somehow appears they've let you go. You're wandering around the streets of Paris in the occupation of the Germans and you decide to write something and you decide to write your your book on philosophy and your book of philosophy is extremely socialist and highly Marxist and you're being watched very carefully by uh, fascist stormtroopers and you couch this book in a particular way so that it says everything that you need to say and no one can possibly argue with you because the bourgeoisie or these fascist troops can't understand a word of it. And yet, we who are looking at it from the angle of, let us say, the underprivileged or the common people uh, or from the angle of the proletariat can see it as one of, a, uh, one of the most humorous books uh, that we've ever read and so blatantly obvious. This is Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre was a genius, one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. He resolved the question of do we exist or not with the simple statement of, yes, we do. Now let's get on with it. The FBI, and I have heard, and this is conjecture, the FBI even today study and, and their agents are studying madly uh, being in nothingness, this, this wonderful book, Being in Nothingness, they are studying it because it is firmly believed that within the pages of the book, Being in Nothingness, is contained a secret and is contained the way on how to completely overthrow the American government. And still the FBI uh, can't quite figure it out. Um... Yes, it is true that if you do read Being in Nothingness with this particular philosophy and understand it, then it becomes fairly obvious that the American government can be overthrown with it, but then again, it has already been overthrown. And that is, uh, that is um, very contradictory, uh, but I think is quite true. I think is quite true. Anyway, I want to talk about Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, and I don't want to talk about Pierre, who is not at a table at a cafe in, in Paris, and uh, I don't even want to talk about tables at all, but I will mention them, because they are very, very important in the world of philosophy, and I would very, very much like you to come with me and understand uh, a an overview of a very straightforward summarization of the consequences of being in nothingness. And I am 
being unbelievably uh, confident, <laughs> overly confident, and being able to make the statement that I could actually put this out there to be able to do this. Uh, mind you, this is an overview, and I've heard people in radio astronomy says that when Bruce gives an overview, it's from about 30,000 feet, or a high-level view is about 30,000 feet up how to do it. And this is really what I'm doing. This is a major, major summary of one of the most important aspects of existentialism, which in the world of philosophy is a massive breakthrough in looking at the unbelievable silliness uh, in which we now find ourselves in the world of science and in the world of, of what seems to be the status quo. That The status quo has almost become a point of worship. And one of the things that Jean-Paul Sartre coined was living in bad faith in looking at this idea of what is the status quo, what is woman, what is man, who are we, and so on, and defining ourselves in terms of the status quo is very simply living in bad faith. To continue in his essay, Paris Under Occupation, Sartre wrote about this correct and polite behavior of uh, the German forces and that this had entrapped too many Persians into complicity with the occupation, accepting what was unnatural as natural. And he wrote, quote, The Germans did not stride revolver in hand through the streets. They did not force civilians to make way for them on the pavement. They would offer seats to old ladies on the metro. They showed great fondness for children and would pat them on the cheek. They had been told to behave correctly and being well-disciplined. They tried shyly and conscientiously to do so. Some of them even displayed a naive kindness, which could find no practical expression. End quote. Sartre noted that when Wehrmacht soldiers asked Parisians politely in their German accented French for directions, people usually felt embarrassed and ashamed as they tried their best to help out the Wehrmacht, which led Sartre to remark, we could not be natural. French was a language widely taught in German schools, and most Germans could speak at least some French. Sartre himself always found it difficult when a Wehrmacht, uh, Wehrmacht soldier asked him for directions. So here is Sartre, and a Wehrmacht soldier comes up to him very politely, asks for directions. Usually saying, not know what it was, and Sartre would respond saying he did not know what it was that the soldier wanted to go or that he didn't know. However, Sartre felt very, very uncomfortable as the very act of speaking to the Wehrmacht meant he had been complicit in the occupation. I'm going in the, in the future, and I'm halfway through reading Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt. And I have to say that that's the most disturbing book I've ever read. And I can see what Sartre is saying in this idea of politeness and what we today would call political correctness in covering up or making it acceptable to have a world of genocide. And we have to distinguish between what we believe and what we want from reality and, the, and, and 
if you like, the cruelty of reality, sometimes the horrors of reality, sometimes the repulsiveness of reality. We have to, to face this in order to be human. And I think that's part of the role of what being a human is. Chapter 5, Jean-Paul Sartre. This is a quote. All this talk by Hegel about existence is very fine. But what does it have to do with truth? End quote. That is a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, which I have in reference number 27. Sartre, in a wonderful book called Being in Nothingness, talks about Pierre who's not at the cafe and therefore must be. He has to be in order not to be at the cafe. And there is some talk about a table. Apparently tables are quite important for philosophy. And I have reference 27, 26, and 28. We do not present tables here nor someone who is not at a cafe in order to exist. Furthermore, we find Sartre a little deep, so we'll take the liberty to, sig uh, to simplify. Now consider a stone. Ask yourself, does a stone exist because you perceive it to exist? Or does your perception exist because you're looking at a stone? Which causes which? Does a stone cause your perception of it to exist? Or does your perception magically cause the stone to appear and thereby exist? Aristotle, quite often uh, misquoted, states simply that if the stone ceases to exist, our perception of it ceases to exist along with it. He also states that if our perception of the stone ceases to exist, the stone continues to exist. Reference number three. In spite of all intervening arguments, there is the simple fact that the stone exists independently of our perception. Those who persist in believing a stone's existence is the result of their perception or that reality is in any way the result of their perception are mentally ill by definition. It is a fundamental fact for those who are sane that reality, or a stone, exists independently of perception. And there is a footnote to this, footnote number one. A, this is begin footnote. A generation of youth who were reared in the 1960s have experimented with altering perception even to the point of death and perhaps beyond. All such experiments have resulted in the same conclusion. No matter how much perception is altered, reality does not change one iota. There is a further interesting proof. Your perception is mostly in your brain, which is located in your head. We could possibly take a stone and start hitting you repeatedly on your head to see if you could alter your perception of the stone in order to make it go away. There would be only one perception 
It would cause us to stop striking your head with the stone, and that is that you perceive and agree that the stone actually exists independently of your perception. We call this technique proof by intimidation. End footnote. If uh, we therefore conclude that something as simple as a stone exists independently of our perception, then what about truth? To paraphrase the argument of Sartre, does a lie exist? Is there such a thing as a lie? Has anyone at any time ever lied? Have you? Is it possible to lie if there is no truth to lie about? Alternatively, can there possibly exist a truth without anybody lying about it? Given F, equals some falsehood, and T, the truth being lied about, we have the following postulate. If exists F, then exists T. Equation 5.1. However, if exists T, then does not exist F, 5.2, is more than possible. Therefore, falsehood cannot exist without truth, but truth can exist without falsehood. Because of 5.2, we can pose not bracket if exists T, then exists F, end bracket, equation 5.3. So falsehood is not an anti-truth. It is possible there may exist one truth, that is, a stone exists, and an infinite number of falsehoods concerning that truth, namely, the stone does not exist, the stone is not a stone, the stone is only a part of your imagination, there are an infinite number of universes in which there are stones, this stone is not of this universe. The probability of the existence of the stone makes it only to appear to be here. If you wait long enough, it will disappear. The stone is only probably here, it's not really here. The local probability density is sufficient to cause instruments to measure the approximate spatial and temporal location of a region, emitting quantum particles resembling a geophysical object. However, the actual existence of a material quantum state is beyond the realm of science at this time. By the authority invested in me by the Supreme Magic Muffin, the repository of all knowledge and power, the existence of the stone is declared illegal and punishable by death. Ignore the stone. It will probably just go away and not bother us anymore. And so on. Nevertheless, if there are a large number of falsehoods, it takes but one truth to dissipate them all. Therefore, there is not a vast amount of truth and an equally vast amount of untruth or falsehood, such that when they meet, they annihilate each other and there is nothing left. There is, for example, a vast ocean of falsehood and the simple truth evaporates it immediately. Truth 
annihilates falsehood. But no falsehood can annihilate truth. Truth, therefore, exists. It exists in and of itself independently of either an anti-truth or our perception. A reality is truth. Truth is reality. This is a definition. Quote, truth is that which exists independently of our perception. End quote. And I am attributing that definition to Cameron Rout. Continuing this line of thought, we note that it is impossible to get a wrong answer to a math exam if there is no right answer. However, the right answer can exist without there being any wrong answers. Correctness can exist without error, but error cannot exist without correctness. Right can exist without wrong, but wrong cannot exist without right. What about good and evil? Is it that virtue can exist without vice, but vice cannot exist without virtue? To respond with a little tongue-in-cheek to Sartre's question, what does truth have to do with existence? Very simply, existence is truth. Truth is what is. The closer you get to reality, the closer you get to the truth. This all seems to make sense. These are the references uh, that I'm giving to this podcast. The first reference I'm going to is um, the comments that I have and most of the things I have on Jean-Paul Sartre is from Wikipedia. Just if you Google Jean-Paul Sartre, it'll come up on Wikipedia. In particular, his uh, experiences during World War II. Also, continuing on uh, from the readings itself, uh, reference 27 is, of course, Sarge Jean-Paul being in nothingness, translated by Hazel E. Barnes, University of Colorado, Washington Square Press, published by Pocket Books, New York in 1956. Uh, there's also references 26 and 28. 26 is Russell, Burton Russell, letter to Freggy in Van uh, Harjunut, Fron from Freggy to Godel, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard University Press, 1967, pages 124 to 125. Reference number 28 is Arthur Schopenhauer, The World is Will and Representation, Dover, Volume 1, ISBN 0486-21761-2, Volume 2, and ISBN 0486-21762-0. Uh, looking beyond, uh, okay, again, reference number three. Reference number three is Aristotle. Again, uh, basic works of Aristotle. Um, it comes from Kirka, or about uh, 335 BC. This particular translation is edited by Richard McKeon of Random House, uh, New York, New York. And I believe that that's all the references for this particular episode. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked what you heard, you may subscribe in your podcast provider and perhaps share in various social media sites. Bruce has promised he won't change the links anymore and screw up trying to find the next episode. Please enjoy the rest of your day and may everything work out for the best. We try to have a new podcast every Saturday, so see you next week.